Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 126 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is Maddie Friedman. Maddie has worked as a correspondent for the Associated Press, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Smithsonian Magazine, and elsewhere. He's also the author of four nonfiction books covering subjects related to the formation of Israel and the conflicts that followed the birth of a nation. I invited Maddie onto the podcast to discuss his book, Spies of No Country, published in 2019. It's the story of four men who worked undercover as part of the Arab section, a tiny group of Jewish spies who operated with no support, no funding, and facing almost impossible odds during the tumultuous months in 1948 when Israel declared independence and faced the combined armies of the Arab nations surrounding it. But before we begin, I want you to consider something. Have you ever wished that your sunglasses protected you from more than just the sun? Maybe you're sitting in traffic and you're suddenly thinking about your airbag deploying. Sometimes we all wish we had this kind of durable protective gear with us, but we don't want to wear Oakley M-frames every day that make us look like we're about to invade Fallujah. Well, my friends at Gray Man and Company think the same way. They think about what they can do to provide more capability without compromising your classic aesthetic. Spies don't look tactical. James Bond doesn't look tactical. He looks stylish. He looks elegant. Gray Man and Company make impact-resistant sunglasses, including prescription lenses, as well as cut-resistant gloves, merino polo shirts, and custom-tailored suits with all sorts of features for guys who might need to look their best but be ready for anything. Check them out at grayman.co. The sunglasses have been huge sellers and more are arriving soon. And use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 for 10% off. Maddie, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I'm really glad for the chance to talk about this because, honestly, I've barely touched on any Israeli history so far on the podcast, even after over 120 episodes. And, you know, reading your book gave me a ton of insight into just how desperate things were for them in 1948. That's right. It's hard to it's hard to remember if you visit Israel today and you see a you know pretty modern, more or less functional country that feels very solid. To remember that 75 years ago the place was completely tenuous and kind of hanging by a thread, and it's at that moment that that this book, Spies of No Country, is is set. It helped me appreciate the day-to-day reality of, of the country when you realize how close it was to not existing at all. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine from where I'm sitting, even reading about it, you know, it's it was unbelievably tenuous for everyone involved, of course. So what was it that led you to focus on this specific subject for your next book? I've always wanted to write a book about spies, I guess. I'm not the only one. There's something about double identity that I've always found very, very interesting. I've been less into the James Bond school of of spy story and more into the I guess the John Carré school where things are very gray and murky and you know there's no clear black and white and no clear good guy no clear bad guy but that that world has always been of interest to me and I've also always been interested in in Israel's own double identity so just as 
spies have a cover story or they have some kind of story about themselves that is not entirely true or which conceals a more complex reality. That's true of Israel as well. Israel thinks of itself as being kind of a European country or a Western country, but most of the Jewish population of Israel comes from the Islamic world. And that's a key tension inside Jewish society in Israel. Just for, for listeners who might not be familiar with Israeli society, Israel is a country of about 9 million people. Of those, about one-fifth are Arab Muslims. So we have about 80% of the country that's, that's Jewish. And of the Jewish citizens of Israel, at least half have roots not in Europe, but in the Islamic world. They come from places like Morocco, Algeria, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen. And that's a key part of Israeli society, but it's not reflected in the story that Israel tells about itself, even to itself. So I've always felt that Israel also has a cover story and Israel also has a double identity. And I thought that an interesting way into that could be a story about spies, because men with double identity might be an interesting way of approaching the story of a country that has a double identity. Yeah, that was a very, very fascinating kind of tenet of the book really was it was clear that at some point these guys, I mean, they even say they were losing their sense of who they were to begin with. Like, were they the cover or were they who they were born as in a sense? And I mean, they really struggle with that throughout, as we'll get into, I think. That's right. The spies themselves aren't sure who they are. And in the stories that they tell about this, this time in 1948 or this operation, which is really the the birth of Israeli intelligence and the birth of the Mossad, when they tell this story later on, they describe themselves as being Israeli agents. But at the time, they weren't Israeli. The word Israeli was not in use when these guys departed on their mission, which was before the state of Israel was founded in May 1948. These guys have, have left what would eventually become the state of Israel by, by the spring of 1948, in some cases by, by January 1948. So they've actually been dispatched on a mission by a country that does not exist yet. And their own identity is much murkier than, they would than the way they would describe it later on. So things are very, very unclear, even to them. And that's one of the things that makes this story interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it really was. It was unlike any other story that I've covered here in so many ways, which I enjoyed. So, Manny, right there in the foreword of the book, you mentioned that you focus on these four individuals, and only one of them was still alive when you started writing the book. So can you talk about what it was like sitting down with someone who actually lived through this and kind of getting the story firsthand from him? So the, the roots of this story actually uh, begin with a different book that I wrote, which I won't I won't get into, so I don't bore the listeners, but I wrote a book called the Aleppo Codex, which is about the most important copy of the Bible in Hebrew. And it's kind of a dirty story about an ancient Bible manuscript. And one of the characters in that book uh, was a retired Mossad agent named Rafi Seton, who at the time was in his early 80s now, he's about 90. And, and in one of our conversations, he mentioned a friend of his who was an even older retired spy. And he said, you know, you should just go meet him. And, and I wasn't sure why I was going to meet him. His name was Isaac Shoshan, and uh, I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to talk to him about, but I have learned over many years as a journalist that if someone offers to introduce you to an old spy, you should go. <laughs> not likely to be disappointed. It won't be a waste of your time. So I got into the car and I drove from Jerusalem, which is where I live, down to Batyam, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. And I arrived at this kind of old, very Soviet-looking block of apartments, and I got into this tiny elevator about the size of a phone booth, and I I went up to the seventh floor and, and came out of the elevator and 
and there was this guy waiting for me. He was, he was tiny. He, I'm not a particularly tall person myself. And he came up to my shoulders, maybe and he had a mustache and mm. glasses and big ears. And he was about 90 and, and he just sat me down in his kitchen, this tiny old kitchen. And he started telling me stories about this unit that he was part of in the 1948 war, the war of independence. And it was called the Arab section. And I'd never heard of it. And I'd never heard of him. And it was a completely new story to me. I thought I knew all the important stories about the war of independence. I've been reporting from Israel for about 30 years and, um, and I'd written a few books, but by that time, and, and I'd never heard of, of any of it. And I went back again and again and again, and I recorded everything that, that he told me. And I, had the incredible blessing of being able to sit with one of these heroes. He used to kind of stop talking and he'd walk over to his stove and brew me black coffee in a tin pot called a finjan. It's like a tin pot with a long handle, which is the way they used to brew coffee in the old days in 1948. And then he'd sit back down and, and the story would continue. And he told me a story about the founding of the state of Israel that was completely different from all of the other stories about that war that I that I'd ever heard. Most of the descriptions of the founding of Israel are very Europe-centric because the founders of Israel largely came from Europe and the founding of Israel happens three years after the Holocaust. And it's very much a story about a disaster in Europe followed by this kind of miraculous resurgence of, of Jewish life in Israel. But in the story that Isaac told me, the characters were all from the Arab world. There were almost no Europeans in the story. The Jews in the story were Jews who came from places like Aleppo, Syria, or Baghdad, or Yemen. And, and that made the entire story sound different. And it really offered a completely different account of what Israel was and how it had been founded. John Le has a great line, which I'm going to completely destroy now when I try to quote it uh, by heart. But he says, you know, that if you, if you look in the clandestine basements of a country, you'll see something very important about the country. And, and I really felt that way. I, I felt that this story about spies, about men who were really Israel's first spies, had a lot to tell us about the country that they ended up founding. We'll be right back. As long as there have been secrets, there have been spies. And as long as there have been spies, there have been incredible gadgets. If you enjoy learning about the history of espionage, then make sure you're not missing out on another great new podcast series as well, titled A History of the World in Spy Objects from Spyscape Studios. Each episode covers an incredible tool or device and its real-world use, including the infamous Bulgarian poison-tipped umbrella, the Aston Martin DB4, the Enigma machine, and even the B-2 stealth bomber. The series is hosted by historian Alice Loxton from History Hit TV, and includes commentary from Daniel Arsham, Anthony Horowitz, Jason Isaacs, and Thomas Heatherwick. A hidden history of the world itself begins to emerge as we are brought closer to the fiercely guarded secrets of intelligence communities. Listen to A History of the World in Spy Objects, hosted by Alice Loxton from Spyscape Studios, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it certainly did. Like I said, I learned a whole lot from it. And so on that note, since we haven't really talked about early Israeli history here in the podcast in the past, do you mind just going back to 48 and just kind of broadly describing the actual beginning of the war for independence before we kind of zero in on these individuals in the Arab section? Just tell us who were the major players and how did the fighting actually start, that sort of thing? Absolutely, Justin. This will only take seven or eight hours, so I'm sure that your your listeners will, <laughs> yeah. will, will bear with us. The United Nations 
decides that the British mandate territory of Palestine will be divided into two states, one for Jews and one for Arabs. Britain had ruled Palestine by that time for about 30 years, and they just got fed up with it. They, they you know, knew that the British Empire was finished, and they were withdrawing from a lot of imperial territories. They were withdrawing from India, for example, and India is also partitioned. So this happens around the same time, and, and uh, there's going to be a state for Jews and a state for, for Arabs, and this is decided by the United Nations on November 29, 1947. And, and a day after that vote, a civil war erupts inside Palestine between the Arab residents of Palestine and the Jewish residents of Palestine. That goes on for about six months, and it's quite vicious until in mid-May 1948, the last British soldiers leave. Israel declares independence and is promptly invaded by five regular Arab armies. So the period of the civil war ends. And then there is something that looks more like a conventional war in which the pre-state militias that had been put together by, by the Jews in Palestine kind of morph into something resembling an actual army. That happens in mid, mid-May 1948. And the war continues until basically until the end of 1948 or the beginning of 1949, at, by which point it's clear that the Jews have pulled off quite an unlikely victory and have managed to, to hold on. And that was the founding of the State of Israel, which happened 75 years ago. So that's a very it's a very short version of the of the event, and it's amid these events that this story of espionage unfolds. Mm-hmm. So you you mention five Arab armies invade immediately, and yet this brand new nation survived. So how did the Arab armies stack up, and how did the Palestinians stack up versus the uh, newly arrived and the the newly formed Israeli government? The British at the time that the war breaks out are quite confident that the Jews will not be able to hold out because you know now we're used to there being a Jewish state with an army, but there had never been anything like that in 1948, or at least there hadn't been for about 2,000 years. So the idea that this was actually going to work was not apparent to everyone, but, but the truth is that the Jewish population here had no choice. The Jewish population of Europe had just been obliterated in the most you know, horrific way possible. Six million people had been murdered. Uh, Jews were being pushed out of the Arab world. The Jews had nowhere to go. So that fact, having no other choice, really, <laughs> uh, really helps in a in a battle. Yeah. And the Jews kind of had their backs to the Mediterranean and just had no other option. And, and they managed to get organized in, in quite an amazing way. And they managed to kind of rustle up weapons from either their own illegal workshops here, or they buy some from from Czechoslovakia, the Soviets are smuggling some weapons in here. They managed to get some weapons smuggled out of the United States. And they, you know, they smuggle in airplanes and crates and different parts. And they kind of put the, put the airplanes together here. And, and somehow they managed to create something that, I'm not sure this would look like an army to us today. But at the time, it, it was enough of an army to pull off this really unlikely military victory that I think mm-hmm. surprised I mean, it certainly surprised the Arab world, but it, it surprised, I think, much of the world. And, and we're used to that outcome now, but it's it's something to read the documents of, of, that, of that year. You know, I spent a lot of time in the archives reading not historical accounts, but actual documents that were written in the, you know, in the months of 1948 when the outcome of the war is not yet clear. And it's quite amazing to be reminded about how tenuous it all was. No one knew what was going to happen when these spies are initially sent for their mission, uh, on their mission to Lebanon, they don't know if they will have a country to come back to. Like, you know, American spies who are dispatched, you know, some, anywhere in the world, they know that they have Langley, you know, you know you have someone in an office who knows your name and, you know, has your photo in a file. And if something happens to you, presumably someone will look, you know, look for you or, or look after you. And, and these guys have nothing like that. 
there is no country, there is no intelligence organization that's dispatching them. They're sent by a country that doesn't yet exist and by an intelligence apparatus that is basically non-existent. It's just an idea. So, you know, the courage that's required to just set out into the storm of events in 1948 is really really quite remarkable. It, It truly is, truly is. And it makes me wonder, like you mentioned, the guys going into Lebanon with cover identities, if everyone loses, you know, if Israel loses, if they lose the war, do they have to stay there in Lebanon under that cover identity? They have no home to go back to or anything like, you know, no, truly no telling what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, through the combined efforts of so many people, the the country was formed, obviously. That's right. And one of their jokes in Lebanon when they're, they've established what is ultimately Israel's first intelligence station in Beirut. And, and um, initially when they get there, they have no way of communicating with with the people who sent them and they have no radio. So Israeli intelligence in 1948 does not own a radio. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine. They don't own a camera. There's no camera in Israeli intelligence. So in in a mission in early 1948, when they're supposed to photograph defenses on the border with Syria, they have to borrow a camera from a civilian who has a camera. And apparently the spies are told as they depart on their mission, they're told, listen, if you guys don't come back, that's okay, but the camera has to come back <laughs> because we promised this guy we'd give him back his camera. So oh my gosh. they head off Lebanon <laughs> without a radio, without any way to contact the, their commanders. And and this is right around the time that the Arab armies invade. So all they know about what's happening in Israel is what they're reading in the Arab newspapers. And in the Arab newspapers, mm. what it says is that the Arab armies are victorious and the Jews are being crushed. And this attempt to set up a Jewish state has been completely nipped in the bud. And as far as they know, it's true. They have no way to ascertain what's actually going on. So the the thought crosses their mind that they're going to be stranded in the Arab world. And these are Jews who come from Arab countries. So their their Arab cover is pretty good. They're native Arabic speakers. And and they, they joke that they have a plan B because if the state of Israel is destroyed, they'll just stick around in Lebanon and, you know, make their assumed Arab identity their real identity. So Hmm. they do have a plan B. In the end, as we know, the state is founded and they managed to get back to it, at least most of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Incredible stuff, really. So, Maddie, since you mentioned the Arab section and it was Arab speaking, Arabic speaking Jews at the time, can you talk about how this section was formed and how they selected the people who would become their their best spies? It's really, it's a really interesting story. Israel before 1948 is almost entirely the Jewish population is almost entirely Eastern European in, in origin, and there's a small minority of Jews who came from the Arab world. After the founding of the state of Israel, there's an immigration wave from Jewish communities in the Arab world, but but that only happens after 1948. So there's a small community inside Israel of Jews who come from places like Iraq and Syria and, and Yemen. And, and these people are largely marginal in, in the Jewish society, in the Jewish society of Palestine at that time. They're just, they're kind of, they're outsiders. The Jewish population comes, you know, or has origins in, in Europe. The world of Yiddish with a very specific kind of food and a very specific Jewish culture. And these Jews who come from Arab countries just seem so foreign. They seemed 
to the Jews who came from Poland. They seemed like Arabs. And, and the, the leadership of the Jewish community in Palestine at the time doesn't really know what to make of these people. So they're kept on the margins of society. And that's where we meet these characters who ultimately become Israel's first spies. So just to give you one example, which you, you know from, from the book, a kid named Jamil Cohen. Jamil Cohen grows up in Damascus. There's a Jewish community in in Damascus, and I guess we should say that at that time, it's hard to imagine now, but at that time, every major Arab city had a Jewish community. There were almost a million Jews who were native to the Islamic world, mostly to the Arab world, and some in non-Arab Islamic countries like Turkey and Iran. Baghdad, the capital of Iraq in the 1940s, by some estimates, had a Jewish population of about one third of the city, which is very hmm. difficult to imagine. But um, but Jews were very much part of of society in, in the Middle East, in the Islamic Middle East. And so Jamil grows up in Damascus and then decides that he has no future in Syria. He understands that the Jews have no future in Syria. So he decides to run away and join the, the pioneers, the Jewish pioneers in Palestine. So he sneaks across the border. Getting from Syria to Palestine is not very complicated. It's not like getting from Poland to Palestine. Basically, you just walk across the border. And he, he joins a kibbutz, which is a kind of a commune very kind of ideological group of pioneers, young people like him. And he wants to be like them, but he's too different. He, he seems too too close to Arab culture to, to fit in. So he, he, he tries using a different name. He stops calling himself Jamil Cohen and he calls himself Gamliel Cohen. Gamliel is a Hebrew name. So it's an attempt to fit in and he tries to listen to the same music that everyone else listens to. And he tries to eat the same food that everyone else eats, even though he thinks it's disgusting because Syrian food is much better than than the food that the pioneers were were eating and yet he is unsuccessful he can't break through the the social barrier and he and he remains on the on the outside so he wants nothing more than to become a sabra sabra is a hebrew word meaning a native born jew from the land of israel he, that's what he wants but he's too different his difference is a kind of disability in in the jewish society in Palestine at that time. And, and we hear the same story from the other spies. The one who I met, Isaac Shoshan, his, his name when he was born was Zaki Shasho. He grew up in Aleppo, which is another, it's the second you know, important city in Syria. And same thing, he runs away to Palestine, ends up on a kibbutz, tries to fit in, can't fit in because he's too different. And these, these kids are, and they're, they're kids, they're teenagers at the time, and, they're, and none of them you know, have much education. Jamil Cohen of the spies is the only one who finished high school. The rest of them didn't even finish high school. So they're all kind of on, on these agricultural communes, working in the fields, trying to fit in and failing. And it's at that moment when they're failing to fit in that the brains behind what would become Israeli intelligence shows up at the kibbutz. And this man, one of the most interesting characters in the history of Israeli intelligence, his name is Shimon Somech, uh, but everyone calls him by an Arabic name, which is Sam'an. So Sam'an is a Jew from Baghdad, Jew from Iraq, and he shows up at, at the kibbutz and he's looking for these kids who can't fit in because they're too foreign, because they seem too Arab. That's precisely who he's looking for. He needs the outsiders because he needs people who can disappear into the Arab world. And he understands that this, this disability, this social disability that's preventing these kids from fitting in on the kibbutz, that quality is actually a weapon that can be put at the disposal of the intelligence services. So he plucks them from, from the kibbutz, takes them, face finding these kids all over all over Israel, some of them are orphans, some of them are street kids, all of them are native Arabic speakers. And he 
he collects them. There are about a dozen of them, and he trains them at a at a camp, just a, you know, a few tents. There's no spy school. There's no you know official intelligence service. This is all going on with the British still in charge in Palestine. So the whole Jewish military apparatus is basically illegal and operating underground. And someone trains them. And that's how the Arab section is formed. And the Arab section now, we understand it as one of the nuclei of what eventually becomes the Mossad. But at the time, it's just this really amateur ad hoc collection of Arabic speaking kids who are kind of given some rudimentary training and told that now there were spies. Oh, man. Absolutely amazing the way that these guys, like you said, they were kind of outcasts in some ways, and then they become like sort of a linchpin of success in this brand new country as everything is coming together and coalescing. It's it's really amazing. Yeah. You know, one, one thing that I love about this story is that their social disability becomes a superpower. It's the fact that they seem too Arab that is preventing them from fitting in socially on the kibbutz. And it is precisely that quality that allows them to kind of enter the holy of holies of the Jewish military organization, which is this secret intelligence service. So it's turning a disadvantage into, into an advantage. And that's one, mm-hmm. of the, that's one of the kind of amazing wrinkles in, in this story. But it's definitely a story about outcasts. It's a story about people from, from the margins. These guys are not James Bond. These are people from the fringes of society who find a way into the center of the action. Mm-hmm. So what were their objective once the Arab section was fully formed? Like, were they spies or saboteurs or both or something else? So they were both, and it kind of ended up being a matter of personality. Jamil, who we just mentioned, Gamliel Cohen, who, who died, unfortunately, before I could interview him, but who left a lot of material for, for me to work with. He was very much an intellectual. He was the only one who finished high school, so he was kind of the most educated of, of the bunch. And he saw his, he saw his job as as um, collecting intelligence. He thought he was going to read newspapers and interview people and kind of form an intelligence picture to allow the new leadership of this country to understand the Arab world better and make good decisions. By contrast, another um, spy from the the four spies who I concentrate on in the book, Yakuba. Yakuba had a different kind of personality. He wanted to blow things up. That's what he thought his job was. And his his dream was just to blow stuff up. And he was very frustrated when the commanders wouldn't let him blow up what he wanted to blow up. And there was a lot of tension between Yakuba and Gamliel because Gamliel wanted to collect intelligence and Yakuba wanted to blow things up. And I think that's an old tension in intelligence. You know, what exactly are we are we here to do? And it ends up being very much about, yeah, about personality. But the job of the Arab section at the outset is is just to understand Arab society in Palestine because the the Jews have their roots in Europe. Some of them have been born here, but uh, but many of them haven't, and they really know very little about Arab society. They don't know, you know, in, in a given village who the important families are, how many people live in the village. You know, is there a militia in the village? What do they talk about at the mosque on on Friday? And and they're trying to put together some kind of picture of this of this society because they don't know much about it. And the Arab section, the men of the Arab section are sent in various guises into villages or into Arab neighborhoods and, and cities and, and just told to kind of collect information. So they disguise themselves as barbers, itinerant barbers. Sometimes they disguise themselves as peddlers. And they go around trying to pick up snippets of, of information. And that's what they start out doing. And then when the war starts um, in earnest in late 1947, that gets moved up a notch. And then they're, they're sent to understand military threats where are the arab militias operating what do the jews here need to be worried about where is it gonna where's it gonna come from 
and then they graduate to to sabotage. And there are a few incidents that I that I describe in the book, and th- there's an attempted assassination. So they're kind of thrown into this really chaotic situation where they're expected to do all kinds of things, none of which they've been trained for, and they were hardly trained to do to do anything. The whole thing was incredibly ad hoc, and the fact that any of them managed to survive is quite quite remarkable. Of the dozen guys who were in the Arab section at the beginning of the war, half of them survived. So yeah. that's, I mean, I guess it's a, it, depending on when you, whether you want to see the glass half full or half empty, that's either a testament to the courage of those who did survive or a testament to how poorly everyone was trained um, because their cover stories were so shoddy and the, the preparation was so thin that it really is a miracle that any of them lived to see mm-hmm. the war. Yeah, it really is. was desperate times. That really is an amazing story. Uh, I have to go back for a moment, Maddie. Uh, there was a moment that kind of made me laugh out loud, as a matter of fact, while I was reading the book, since you talked about the tension between Yakuba and Gamliel. The, I think that you wrote at one point that Yakuba was seen as kind of a wild man in the section, and then you cut right to like a quote from his debriefing where he himself said, I was kind of a wild man back then. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. I, I genuinely laughed out loud at that. Like, okay, at least he was self-aware about that. He was. He was self-aware. He was proud of being a wild man. He thought the other guys were wimps. And he, you know, his dream, what, when they're in Lebanon, he wants to blow up the oil refinery in Tripoli, which is this very large and very important installation, which is supplying oil to the Arab armies and to many other uh, you know, normal people around mm-hmm. the Middle East. And, and Yakuba really wants to do something dramatic and violent. And he's very frustrated when his commanders won't let him do it. They don't really want to blow up the the oil refinery in Tripoli, even though he really (laughs) wants to. And there's a lot of tension on that point, which includes a threat from him to just come home, you know, to disobey orders and just come home if they don't let him do what what he wants. But actually, Yakuba goes on to become a, a legendary figure in Israeli intelligence. And he is active in the intelligence services into his 70s. So even when he's oh. an elderly guy, he's still being called back to do missions here here and there. And I guess it's it's true that, you know, who will suspect an elderly gentleman in a hotel lobby or, you know, on a train, no one's going to expect a spy to be that old, but we probably shouldn't uh, disregard the possibility that a spy could be 70 years old or 80 years old. Why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was, yeah, he was quite a character, I can tell. So since you mentioned some of their missions, I want to go over a couple of their early missions. I know that in the book you talked about this objective they had of destroying a a ambulance bomb or a bomb-laden ambulance before it was actually used against them. So can you talk about that a little bit? That's one of the missions that they're most proud of. And it's, I mean, in retrospect, it seems so kind of small scale and so amateur compared to everything that Israeli intelligence gets up to later on. But this is one of the first real missions that Israeli intelligence ever carries out. And it's based on this warning that the Arab militia in Haifa, this is at the height of the independence war, the Arab militia in Haifa has prepared um, a car bomb to go off at a movie theater in the Jewish part of the city. Haifa is an important port city that at the time was mixed Jews and Arabs and, and still is. It's actually a kind of a lovely city, which I really recommend visiting maybe now now might not be the time, but in the future, Haifa really is a is a lovely place. So the Arab militia was planning to bomb this this movie theater, at least according to the intelligence that that reached the Jewish military apparatus. And and at the time, this is before the declaration of the state in May 1948. So there is no state of Israel, there is no Israeli army, there's no artillery, there's no air force. The the war at that time is basically a kind of gang war. It's like a civil war more than an actual you know conflict that we would recognize today as being as being a war so the only 
way that the Jewish commanders think they can take care of this threat is by sending their own car bomb to blow up the Arab car bomb. <laughs> and the way they decide to do it is by sending the Arab section. So they kind of snoop around the Arab part of town and, and discover the car bomb in an ambulance or in a truck that's being disguised as a British ambulance. And two of the spies, one of them is Isaac, the one who I actually met when he was about 90, this kind of little old guy who I was so lucky to spend time with in his apartment. Um, he was one of the spies and the other, the other man was Yakuba, the wild man who loved blowing things up. So this was, you know, perfect mission for him. And they, they booby trap an Oldsmobile. Again, the, the, the militia has never done anything like this. They don't really know how to make bombs. And it's really a miracle that they didn't blow themselves up while, while trying to rig the Oldsmobile. And, and, but they, they do, they kind of fill the trunk with explosives and they rig it to, to explode. And they kind of have this very primitive timing device, which they make with um, a condom that's filled with acid. So the acid is supposed to melt through the condom and then trigger the bomb. And, and they, they drive it into this garage where, where the, the militiamen are preparing the, the bomb in the ambulance and they park it next to the ambulance. And there's a whole story that I get into in the book about how they kind of bluff their way in and then have to bluff their way out and explain why they're leaving the old mobile in the garage instead of driving it out. And they kind of run out and drive away in, in a second car that they have with them. The, the getaway car is is driven by Isaac, who actually does not know how to drive. He never learned how to drive, <laughs> so he doesn't know how to use the gears. Uh, but th this is all, again, very ad hoc, and this is just the way they operated. So they're kind of hightailing it out of there when when their car bomb goes off and, and detonates the other car bombs. So there's a massive explosion, and this is one of the first significant missions that they undertake in, in the independence war. Yeah, just shows how desperate times were if they the getaway car driver didn't actually know how to drive prior to the mission. That's that was just totally amazing to me. But they pulled it off. There was another right, there was another mission that I don't get into in the book that where Isaac was supposed to ride a bicycle. He was supposed to be disguised as a bus mechanic riding a bicycle and he didn't know how to ride a bicycle either. Oh. He grew up kind of oh in the God. alleys of Aleppo. His dad was a janitor, he was dirt poor, he didn't even have shoes much of the time when he was growing up so he definitely didn't have a bicycle and in order to carry out this mission he had to learn how to ride a bicycle so th these this isn't james bond you know these guys did not know their way around a cocktail party you know they didn't know <laughs> the right kind of cutlery to use you know, they probably never worn a suit most of them these are really street kids who are learning the ropes mm -hmm. you know as they go along yeah it's incredible but they i mean they all volunteered right and they did not turned down these assignments as they came over the coming months and year. Amazing. Yeah, yeah it is amazing. When so, they're told to go, they, they just go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So who was this guy? Was it Nimir, I think, was another target of theirs, a, a cleric? Right, so same city, Haifa, mixed city. One of the most important leaders in Arab Haifa is, his name is Nimr al-Khatib. He's both a cleric and one of the military commanders in, in Haifa. And as the war picks up pace and as it looks like the Jews could lose the war in the initial phase of the war in the first couple of months, beginning in, at the very end of 1947, it looks like the Jews are about to lose. And the Jewish commanders are, are desperate and they decide that what they need to do is they need to take out Neymar. And the people who are told to do it, again, the Arab section, we're really the only the only people on the Jewish side who can move freely around Arab areas of Palestine. So they're they're given the instruction to to assassinate him, and they come up with this 
fairly elaborate plan. They tail him. They try to kind of figure out what his schedule is, and what made that particular what that what made that particular story amazing for me as someone researching uh, th- this this story for for the book for Spies of No Country is that we actually have an account of this from Nimer. So we have an account from the target of the assassination, and I guess that's giving away that he manages to survive the assassination, although just barely. The assassination puts him out of action but doesn't kill him. And afterwards, he writes a book, which was very hard to find. It's an Arabic book that exists in very few copies, and I managed to get my hands on on one of them. And, And that allowed me to tell the story of this attempted assassination from a few different perspectives. So we have Isaac. Again, the, the who I met as an old man, and we have as we have his account of tailing this guy in the car, and we have the account from the gunman who is in the car. They kind of it's it sounds kind of like a mafia hit almost. They have a Tommy gun and they kind of pull alongside Nemo's car and spray the car with bullets, and and we have the target of the assassination himself who gives us a very human account, which allows ourselves to imagine. Which it, it it allows us to imagine ourselves in his shoes, and we have a kind of a human, kind of a tragic human meeting between different people, who all have a good point. I can kind of imagine myself in in the shoes of the target of the assassination. I don't think he was an evil person by any stretch of the imagination. I can completely imagine his point of view, and I hope that the reader can too. And we have this just this collision of different national movements and this collision of different people in Haifa as the Arab section tries to assassinate this cleric and doesn't quite work. Many of their missions don't quite work, which I think is actually quite common in the real world of intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, in the movie, there's always going to be a beautiful explosion and, or some kind of puzzle that fits precisely together. But in the real world, things don't ever work as they're supposed to work. And even if they work as they're supposed to work, the results of the mission are never what they're expected to be. And mm-hmm. It's always much more murky and i think le carré was really onto that which is why i you know i see i see him as a model for the spy story rather than ian fleming yeah i, I agree with you on completely on that one so besides the these covert operations that they were pulling off i mean they obviously spent quite a bit of time undercover in in various places and and times as well so how often were these guys close to being discovered or were they ever discovered while trying to work undercover yeah, they they were. Uh, some of them were discovered and managed to talk their way out of it. There's a scene involving Gamaliel Cohen where he's almost killed in Haifa because someone realizes that his accent is wrong. In, in Arabic, there are very specific regional accents. So people can tell not just what country you're from, by what dialect of Arabic you're speaking. Often they can tell what city or town you're from or what class you're from. So the matter of, of, of accent is very, very important. And these guys got it wrong all the time. So Gamil Cohen, Jamil Cohen is, is a Jew from Damascus. So he has a very specific accent and he tries to speak with a Palestinian accent, uh, specifically with the accent of a Palestinian Muslim from Jaffa. But real Palestinians can pick it up. So he almost gets killed and he manages to talk his way out of it. And that's when one scene in the book, but other members of the Arab section are, are not so lucky. There's a story of two spies who are in Jaffa, in the Arab city of Jaffa at the very end of 1947, and, and they're spotted by members of the Arab militia. These are two young Jewish guys from Iraq, and the Arab militia men realize that there's something off about them, and they they arrest them, and they take them somewhere and are grilling them, and it, we don't know exactly what happened to them, but it seems that 
the Arab militiamen told them to wash their hands and face as a Muslim would do before prayer. They, they suspect that these guys are not Muslim. So they tell them to do something that any Muslim would know how to do. It seems that one of them knew how to do it and the other did not. Part of their training was you know, to, to be familiar with very basic parts of Muslim practice. But I guess one of them wasn't paying attention or you know, just, just got it wrong. And that's how they realized that these guys are not who, who they claim to be. And, and they're both shot. Another uh, member of the Arab section, kid who's just 19 years old, his name was Nisim Atia. He is disguised as a peddler and he sets off on a mission near the Arab city of Lod at the height of the war and just disappears. We have no idea what happened to him, but presumably his cover was insufficient or someone you know, noticed that there was something off about his clothes or off about his accent. And he, and he was also killed. Two other agents are caught by the Egyptian army in Gaza and they're also executed and, and their bodies are never found. So yes, this was a very perilous, a very perilous mission. And, and it often revolved around very small points of cover and identity and often, you know, grammar was a matter of life and death. If you said the wrong word to the wrong person, they'd figure out that your identity was fake and it could cost you your life. And it happened to at least half of the men who were initially in the Arab section at the beginning of the war. Yeah, just unbelievably dangerous times for everyone involved. Uh, I believe also, if I recall correctly, there was a very, very tense night for Isaac. He was with Bedouins out in the desert and they just ascertained very quickly that he was not who he said he was. That's right. It's a story that that he told me, and it, you know, he was ninety or so, and when when I interviewed him, and and this story just terrified him T to this day, or to the to the point where I where I was interviewing him, and he'd been sent to try to gather information about the murder, an instance of of murder which had been pinned on a Bedouin tribe in in the north of of Israel or the north of Palestine, as it was at that time, and he he showed up and he had a cover story about being the son of a cattle merchant from Jaffa and and they they were onto him immediately. They they knew immediately that he was lying. And somehow he managed to get out of it. And I tell the story, you know, in a kind of in a brief way in the book, but he he realized how how dangerous it was and how how poorly he'd been trained. I think that it, it really taught him that this was not a joke, that you weren't going to be able to just, you know, trick people who who knew their culture really well that you really had to take this very seriously and, and this happens to them again and again and again and they get increasingly professional as time goes on but they're never really professional spies again they receive no actual training at the time that this mission took place it's only much later once the Mossad is founded and once Israeli intelligence really takes shape that there's some kind of professional training for spies and actually these guys end up being among the trainers because they've had real field experience. And, and Sam'an, the, the brains behind the whole Arab section operation, this Jew from Baghdad who selects them and then trains them kind of and sends them off, he ends up being a really important figure in Israeli intelligence. And he was one of the people who ran Eli Cohen, who is probably the most famous Israeli spy who manages to penetrate the Syrian regime in the 60s until he's also uncovered and he's hung in Damascus in 1965. So the, the men of the Arab section end up being pivotal in the evolution of Israeli intelligence afterward. Yeah, I, I just don't know how they made it through that time period, honestly. And there was a story, it was, Maddie, truly, it was one of my, my favorite stories that I've read in quite some time. And I've done a lot of reading over the past couple of years. But this story about, I think it was Yakuba was in Damascus and buying a, a tea set 
at the the souk there. Could you talk about that a little bit? It was truly just incredibly thought provoking for me. Justin, that's amazing to hear. I love that story. And I, you, know, you never know when you're writing something what, what will resonate with, with readers. That's not really a story about espionage, although it is a story about identity and kind of, you know, double identity. So Yakuba is in Damascus on an intelligence mission of some, of some kind, and he ends up in the market in Damascus, and he wants to buy a copper tea set, which is a pretty classic souvenir to get in, in Syria and in other parts of the Arab world. And, and he is talking to a merchant in, in the souk, in the market in Damascus, and he asks him if he has another set. And, and this man says, yes, I have one at home. Come, come with me. So Yakuba and this other spy, both of them are claiming to be Arab Muslims from Palestine. They follow this merchant back to his home to see if, if this guy has another tea set. And, and the whole time they're playing up their cover story, which is that they are, they're fighters, they're Palestinian fighters who are engaged in fighting the Jews in Palestine. And they're making a big deal about that because they assume that the merchant who's with them is, is a Muslim. And they end up back at his house and immediately Yakuba smells something and he just knows by the smell of the food that these are Jews. The merchant is a Jew and they, they look around the, the house and Yakuba sees details of the decor of the house that indicate to him that this merchant was, was a Jew. So the, the, the merchant had not presented himself as being Jewish and Yakuba and his partner were claiming to be Muslim. So there's this kind of complicated dance of identity going on and, and Yakuba also can't reveal who he is. So he, you know, he, it's this moment of incredible identity confusion and this very powerful feeling of tribal solidarity, but it's covered under this, you know, web of lies that everyone is, is telling each other. So I, I do think that's a story that even though it's really unconnected to the events of 1948, it really is at the heart of the very complicated events that we're, that we're talking about in the story of these spies. Yeah, I think that you mentioned that in the in the debriefing notes that Yakuba he couldn't continue talking after relaying that story because he was so overcome with the emotion of it of having to essentially convince this poor man that he would love to see his family killed for being Jewish while they're in there getting food and buying a tea set from him and and that sort of thing. Just the horrible complications and the the clear conflict of identity that that would create and the the cost to him as well. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing the burden that these guys were carrying with them even long afterwards and what they had to carry in order to accomplish the mission and, and, you know, see the country formed. It is amazing. But the story, that story I found in a really long transcript of a conversation with Yakuba that was um, put together in the 1990s. So we're talking about 50 years after the war and in the transcript, as you, as you note, he tells this story and then there's a note from the person who's interviewing him, a written note that says he can't continue speaking. So the story, you know, choked him up to such an extent that this tough guy, the, the wild man, right? The guy who wanted to blow everything up. This guy was so overcome by emotion when he remembered the story that he couldn't even, you know, he couldn't even go on speaking. So it obviously was a story that meant a great deal to him. Yeah. Yeah. Just an incredible burden that these guys carry with them out of necessity just to stay alive and in a sense to keep this family alive as well, although they could never know it. That's right. That's right. The, the merchant never knew who'd been in his house. Yeah. Just amazing stuff. Also, there was this story, this incredible mission to blow up the, the ship 
the the yacht that used to belong to Adolf Hitler, which I, I don't know how I had never heard of that before, but absolutely amazing stuff. So can you walk us through this mission to destroy this uh, ship? Sure. I mean, that's also a pretty wild, <laughs> a pretty wild story where it's the end of 1948. So the state of Israel has already been founded. Um, Israeli intelligence now officially exists, even though it's mostly on paper. And, and, and there's also an Israeli Navy, which also doesn't really exist. It's just a few kind of leaky boats that they found around the port in Haifa. And but but this war is still is still going on, and they're worried about naval threats. And and the spies in Beirut notice that there's a ship in the port in Beirut. So the Arab section has set itself up in Beirut, which is the capital of Lebanon, and they're running this intelligence operation in in, in Beirut. And they see that there's a small German warship in the port, and it wasn't a significant ship by the standards of World War II, so it wasn't a battleship or a destroyer or anything like that. This is a really small ship, but in the context of the Eastern Mediterranean in 1948, it was significant. It was a real, you know, it was a real craft that could do some damage. And, and they realized that this boat is, is the Aviso Grill. That ship is famous, among, you know, I guess among small circles of naval enthusiasts as Hitler's personal yacht. This was a ship that was built for Hitler, and it was supposed to play a role in world history because when the Nazis conquered Great Britain, this was the ship that was going to sail up the Thames with Hitler on board to accept the British surrender. So it had a, a role planned for it in, in world history. Of course, luckily for everyone, the Nazis don't conquer Great Britain, and the ship never manages to play the role that was scripted for it. And, you know, after the war, the ship kind of disappears and then resurfaces in 1948 in Beirut. And what, what ensues is this really interesting mission where there is an ostensible target or an ostensible reason for the mission and then the real reason for the mission. The official reason for the mission is that the Israelis are worried that this boat is going to be given to the Egyptian Navy and that it will be used against the Israeli Navy in the Mediterranean. And as I mentioned, there isn't really an Israeli Navy. It's mostly imaginary. So the ship could be, be a real naval threat. And so they decide that the spies in Beirut need to try to sink the ship. The real reason, which is quite clear if you read the correspondence, and we have the message traffic between the agents and headquarters in Israel, by that time they'd managed to smuggle them a radio. So they've started to broadcast from a radio set that they have on a, on a roof. They have like a small rooftop apartment in Beirut and they've disguised the antenna as a clothesline on which they hang their underwear. And they're tapping out these messages in Morse code to Israel and uh, to the headquarters of Israeli intelligence in Israel, which is basically <laughs> the corner of a shed and a kibbutz. We have pictures of the electric picture in the book. It's just this like very rough wooden table with a radio set on it. That is Mossad headquarters, more or less, at the time. And um, the, the real reason, as we can see from the message traffic, is that the Jews want to sink Hitler's yacht. And this is 1948. I mean, the war is barely over. It's still not clear that Hitler is dead. And, you know, it's still not clear to many of the Jews if their families are alive or dead. So the, the Second World War and the Holocaust are still kind of going on in the minds of, of the Jews in Israel. And they have to strike a symbolic blow against the Nazis, even though it doesn't make much sense because, of course, the boat doesn't belong to Hitler anymore. But they decide, you know, they're going to they're gonna sink this ship. And you can tell when you look at the message traffic that what they really want to do is to sink Hitler's yacht as if this will, you know, kind of serve as some kind of retroactive revenge. And they embark on a mission that, again, looks pretty rudimentary to our eyes, but for them at the time was extremely complicated. And it's really the first 
mission of its type that Israeli intelligence attempts outside the borders of Israel. So they use all of the tools at their disposal. They send an airplane to take aerial photographs, which in 1948 was a big deal. And they land a frogman in Beirut with magnetic mines. Spies in Beirut, the Arab section guys in Beirut are you know, ready to kind of meet the frogman when he comes and they escort him to the port and they send him out. And maybe I won't give away the end of the story, but like, like many of their missions, it doesn't quite go according to plan but it's it goes enough according to plan i suppose for them to declare the mission a success and the aviso grill does not enter combat against the israeli navy in the in the mediterranean but it doesn't really change the outcome of the second world war yeah yeah it's unfortunate but it's understandable they did strike a blow like you mentioned and i know that must have felt tremendously heartening and what you mentioned also about the the time period is it's easy to look back now with what we know and just assume that kind of everything came to light after the summer of 1945, but that's the furthest thing from the case. Like you said, a lot of people had no idea what had happened to their relatives and, and wouldn't know even then for, for years to come potentially. And the, the question of whether Hitler was even still alive or not, you know, which, I mean, some people, I guess, still wonder what happened to him in the end, but it's, you know, those, those wounds were fresh in so many ways, even three years later. And so I can totally understand why they would want to strike out against that ship, even though it seemed like it was not necessarily a valuable strategic target at the time, but it certainly makes sense from their perspective. Right. And they're very proud of this operation, even though it doesn't go quite according to plan. And even though the goals of the operation are very murky, they're really proud of it. This is considered one of their great successes because they managed to pull off this very complicated operation where where they're using different tools and they're bringing people from Israel, they're landing people with rubber dinghies and extracting them afterward. And, and so this is this is a great success for them, even though, as you mentioned, it's not exactly clear what, what it achieved. By the way, if you Google Aviso Grill, you might find that the, the toilet from the ship ends up somehow in a scrapyard in New Jersey. There's a whole, there's a whole story about the afterlife of this boat. Wow. I guess we won't get into, but you can find it online. Yeah, I, I had not read that yet. That's interesting. So, Maddie, as the war kind of, I shouldn't say the war wound down, but as the war came to its conclusion and Israel gained its independence, what exactly happened to the Arab section and what happened to the guys who were part of it, the survivors anyway? So the the Arab section is is shut down in the spring of 1950. The, the state has been founded in 1948, and, and the, the Arab section actually doesn't belong to the Israeli army because there is no Israeli army when, when they're sent to Lebanon. They belong to the pre-state militia, which is called the Palmach, which is this very kind of chaotic, it's a socialist militia. They don't really believe in discipline or in ranks, and, and that's their organizational affiliation. So when the state is founded, the spies officially become part of Israeli military intelligence, but they've never actually met anyone from Israeli military intelligence because they're in Lebanon. So they, they're given ranks, and, but they've never you know, worn their ranks because they're you know, undercover identities in Lebanon. And, and this continues until 1950 when the last Arab section guys are pulled out. And this is part of a reorganization that, that's going on. It, and the, the bottom line is that the old kind of unruly, undisciplined pre-state militias have to be disbanded as Israel becomes a state and puts together some kind of professional military. And these guys were doing their best, but they weren't you know, trained agents. They didn't have access to any government secrets. They were a bit unpredictable and, and they needed to be replaced with something that, that was more professional. And that's basically the reason they're, they're pulled out by, by ship. They're you know, kind of, they row out with, with a, a 
dinghy into the Mediterranean from Beirut and they meet an Israeli warship in the Mediterranean and they're brought back to the state of Israel in the spring of 1950. But I shouldn't say back because they've never been to the state of Israel. Mm. When they left, the state of Israel did not exist yet. They left from Haifa in the spring of 1948 before the state had been founded. So actually when they come back in 1950, it's their first visit to their own state. It's the first time they meet anyone from the army of which they are supposedly a part. It's quite, you know, it's quite an amazing event when they return to Haifa and they still remember the return. Isaac told me about it because he expected to be welcomed at the port and uh, he expected the, you know, the old militia guys who'd been his friends two or three years earlier to be there to meet him. But, but the militia had been disbanded and things had moved so fast in the two years he'd been away that that very little that he remembered was still left and there was actually no one to meet him. He was dropped off on a pier at Haifa and, you know, wished the best of luck, but there was actually no, no welcoming party. No and he still remembered it. I think it really kind of, yeah, I think it was painful. I think it was painful for him. And, and, and not long afterward, these guys, the ones who survive, join the organized intelligence services. So they join the Mossad and many of them go on to have storied careers in the Mossad. Gamiel, Jamir Cohen, who we mentioned at the beginning, he goes on to be one of the longest running uh, kind of deep cover agents that Israel has. And he keeps using the same cover identity that he was using in the Arab section. He calls himself Yusuf al-Hamid. And he, he goes on with that identity. He ends up in Europe. His wife, who I met, was part of his cover story. And um, she told me that she gave birth in a hospital in Europe under an Arab identity and had to remember while giving birth not to scream in Hebrew. <laughs> And yeah, they have a daughter who they name Samira, which is an Arabic name. And they call her Samira because they know that eventually they'll go back to Israel and they'll just drop the first syllable of her name and she will become Mira, which is a Hebrew name. So they chose an Arabic name that could be easily adapted as, as a Hebrew name once the mission was over. And that's actually what happened when Samira was a few years old, who went back to Israel. And then she's informed that she's actually Israeli and that her name is Mira. And I met her. I met her. She's a woman who, a lovely woman who lives in Tel Aviv. And I interviewed her for the, for the book. So there are amazing echoes of this story that continue really to this day. My gosh, that's incredible to be born into an undercover alias. Absolutely amazing. Wow. So are these four guys, Maddie, are they all like individually remembered for their contributions during the war? Or is this something that's been like more recently uncovered by your research or something else? These guys are almost completely forgotten. When I Hmm. start to research this story, I've never heard of any of them. And in fact, I've never heard of the Arab section. And in the intelligence community here, the Arab section is known because it's really the kind of the birth of Israeli intelligence. And, And some of these agents were famous inside the world of Israeli intelligence, people like Yakuba and, and, and Gamliel, but outside the world of spies, they, they're almost completely unknown in part, I think, because they weren't caught. So the most famous spy in Israel is Eli Cohen, who is kind of a, a descendant of the Arab section. He's the one who was caught in Syria in the 60s and hung in 1965. And he, he has a story that we know because he was caught. But if you're a spy, you know, undercover for a year or five years or 10 years and you're not caught, people are just not going to know who you are. And that was true mm-hmm. of, of Gamil and some of the other guys. So, so no, they're not famous. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was to 
give them the credit that they that they deserve. I know Isaac, who was the only one of them who was still alive when I wrote the book, he he would never say it because he was too modest. And he was just a really kind of low key and good guy. He would never say it, but he did. He felt that they would not give them the credit that they deserved. They weren't recognized as the heroes that they that they were and one of the great successes of my career in my opinion was when i brought the cop a copy of the book to isaac and isaac was in his early 90s and he died a few years later he died two years ago at, at age 96 and I, I brought him a copy of the book and he was not going to read it he doesn't speak english and i'm not sure that he was really capable of reading at that point but he could look at the book and see his own picture on the cover mm. of the book and and that I think meant a lot to him. He, again, he wouldn't say it because you know it would seem conceited, and he just wasn't that kind of guy. He was really mm -hmm. a lovely, lovely guy. But but I think it meant something to him that finally someone had written this story down and had acknowledged it as as important. I think that that should have happened long before. But I was lucky as a reporter that the story wasn't you know properly written down because it allowed me to tell an unknown story many many years later. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, and I, I really appreciate it because we all benefit from it as well, from learning from your hard work and from Isaac's actions and of the other guys as well. It, it truly is an amazing story. So, and I'm, I'm very glad that it was uncovered at all. I take it that the Israeli government doesn't really declassify stuff after a certain period of time in the way that the U.S. government often does. It, it does. Sometimes you have to ask for things to be declassified. Yeah. There's a classification that goes for 30 years and there's a classification level that goes for 50. And then there are, there's some stuff that apparently is never declassified. But hmm. when I requested the declassification of the Arab section files, I was the first one to request it, which, hmm. which says something. I mean, this is an incredible story about 1948. And I was researching this book and I guess... 2013 14 yeah i mean decades later and no one had even asked for the for the message traffic between beirut and headquarters for example i was the first one to ask and, and that's quite amazing again it's quite yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. and i guess disappointing i wish you know it seems like other researchers should have been on it but of course it's great for me that i was the first one to get it <laughs> yeah. I should yeah. have the story is out there now which is the most important thing i think from a amateur historian perspective as is mine of course well, wow. so Maddie, this is incredible. And uh, for those of you who want to pick up the book, we, we have, as always, we have not covered nearly everything that is in the book. It's called Spies of No Country by Maddie Friedman. Maddie, are you working on something else right now? Do you have another book in the works at the moment you can tell us about? I'm trying to work on a book also about those same years, the 1940s, about a mission behind enemy lines in World War II, which also has a very complicated story that hasn't been properly told. Um, I, I admit that my research has been disrupted by the tragic events here over the past month or two, um, which kind of make it hard to focus. Uh, in, in Israel, unfortunately, the, the excitement didn't end in the 1940s, and it still yeah. throws a lot of yes. it throws a lot of curveballs curve and a lot of tragedy for us and for our neighbors, and it, it sometimes makes it hard to sit down and do historical research. But yes, eventually I will have to write that book, if only because I signed a contract gives me a deadline until the summer so i'll have to get back into oh, it i wrote a book last year about an interesting moment in rock and roll history which was the time leonard cohen the poet the kind of troubadour of the 1960s and 70s showed up in the middle of the yom kippur war and gave one of the weirdest concert tours of all time in 1973 that's a book that came out last year so i'm still writing i have no choice you know i have to feed the kids that keeps me at my at my desk and in the archives. So I hope to have a book for your listeners within, you know, a year or two, if I can swing it. 
Okay, terrific. Well, there's nothing I love more than behind enemy lines kind of secret mission from World War II because that's come up many times on the podcast as well, believe me. I'm on it. Great, great, great. Well, thank you so much, Maddie. This has been really interesting. Do you have a public social media or anything like that you can share if people want to connect with you after they listen to this episode? Absolutely. I have, unfortunately, requisite social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook. I'm on there. I'm not you know, super active, but I, but I am there. When I publish something or you know, release something, I usually remember to put it on those two accounts. <laughs> be, you know, anyone who's interested in hearing more can definitely find me there. Okay, fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Maddie. This has been an amazing story. Justin, thank you so much for your interest and thank you for having me. Of course. Take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.